0: You're listening to Work in Progress. I'm Ramona Schindelheim, Editor-in-Chief of Working Nation. Work in Progress explores the rapidly changing workplace through conversations with innovators, educators, and decision makers, people with solutions to today's workforce challenges. More than 80 million Americans, one in three, have a criminal record. Even when it includes only a misdemeanor, arrest, or conviction, that record poses a significant barrier to employment. The Second Chance Business Coalition was formed to increase the number of companies offering job opportunities to individuals with criminal records. Joining me today to discuss this ongoing mission is Stan Ball, Eaton's Vice President and Chief Litigation Counsel. Stan, thank you for joining me. Ramona, it's so great
1: to be here with you. I look forward to the discussion.
0: The Second Chance Business Coalition was founded by your CEO, Craig Arnold, and J.P. Morgan Chase CEO, Jamie Dimon. Can you tell me what was the catalyst for this organization?
1: Sure, no, I have, have you to discuss it. I'm gonna go kind of long and give you some of the long history on this, but you may recall um, the Business Roundtable made a decision to redefine uh, the purpose of businesses. And you know, going back to business school, our, our kind of education on what was the purpose of a business was to drive revenue for shareholders. And in recent years, they've decided that that's not good enough. It's to actually, in in addition to our shareholders, to improve the lives of our employees, our customers, and the communities in which we serve. And so as a part of that, and the timing couldn't have worked better um, following the murder of George Floyd and the increase in the emphasis on the general public looking at corporations to take a stand on social issues, the Business Roundtable made a decision to form an equitable justice subcommittee that would be focused on two things. The first was police reform at the national level. And then the second issue, which is what we'll talk about today, is reentry and finding ways from a policy perspective to reduce barriers for justice involved individuals to find employment. Um, as we went on that journey and, and working closely with our CEO, Craig Arnold, who was the chair of the Equitable Justice Subcommittee for the Business Roundtable, we put forth a set of policies um, that we, we supported and the, the CEOs of these companies who are part of the BRT support it. And we put forth that policy perspective. We brought in legislators um, at the federal level to talk about areas in which we could improve. But at at some point we kind of stopped and said, wait a second, we're all members of the business roundtable. We all represent massive multinational organizations. And yes, there's a part in which Washington can play in this. And from a policy perspective and reducing barriers, But at the same time, we've got to turn that mirror around and look at ourselves and say, can we do better as employers to reduce barriers that we've put in place that are, one, either arbitrary or outdated and inconsistent with our stated values? So as we kind of turned that mirror and looked at our organizations, not just J.P. Morgan and Eaton, but a number of companies, we decided let's form a coalition, let's share best practices, and instead of waiting on policies to change that are external or driven out of Washington, let's look at our own policies and make some changes.
0: So what do we pick from there? So at that time, what kind of barriers, and I know that they probably, many of them still exist, like say a job seeker comes in for, you know, applying for a job, what kind of barriers does that criminal record create? Is it mental or is there a, a business case for it?
1: Sure. So so the, the barriers, and I'm going to speak from the the angle of a justice-involved individual who's submitting the application. What the statistics have shown is that if you do not ban the box, and basically abandoning the box is not is waiting to ask whether or not someone has a criminal history or waiting to conduct a background check until you extend a formal offer of employment. So employers, when they do not ban the box, if you're asking for someone who's submitting just their first application, what the statistics have shown is that if someone checks that box and says, yes, I have a criminal history, there's a 50% chance that an individual is not going to get a call back without any further investigation into their qualifications, any individualized assessment on whether or not the, the criminal conduct has any relationship whatsoever to the job at hand. And so when we talk about barriers, that's that's number one is that if you are not banning the box and waiting to get to know your applicants in some meaningful way, the biases and the stigma associated with a criminal history will take its toll right at the application process.
0: Is that legal in any way, shape, or form to use that as a barrier?
1: It, it is in some states. What, what we have seen in recent years is that legislation, both at the federal level, and in certain states around the country have adopted ban-the-box practices and then they've embedded that in law. There are still some states that have not done that. And so to your question, it's just a state-by-state analysis on whether or not that practice of asking for someone to self-disclose at the time of application is, is
0: still legal or not. So again, this is a stigma that is attached to someone with a criminal record without even investigating whether or not that was a misdemeanor or a felony, anything at all. It's just you check the box and then you don't get that call back. Can you put into words more of what that stigma is? I, I can kind of figure it out on my own. but what would you what would you say because you've done all the research? I hate to put it
1: this way, but I think most experts in this field and I'm I'm certainly not. I'm, I'm learning as I go. so let, let me not say that at all that I'm an expert, but I think based on my discussions and what I've read, is the, it's the equivalent of a life sentence. That, that's what that is. It is, you know, if we believe in our justice system with all of its faults, when someone is convicted and they are given a sentence at the, with the time that that time is served, it should be done, it should be over with. That should be the end of it. But if our practices in terms of looking at potential employees is to say, well, you've got this on your record, we really don't care whether or not you've paid your debt to society or not, we're still going to attach the stigma to you. That's the equivalent of a life sentence when it comes
0: to finding meaningful employment. So what are you doing at the coalition to try to shift that mindset? There's three things that I
1: think are important that we're trying to accomplish with the coalition. The first thing is to actually talk about this issue. And I know that's kind of like, it's like a weird thing to say that, You have all these corporations that could come up with all types of different initiatives and things, but your your first kind of core goal is to talk about this issue. And the reason why that's important is to send a market signal to the employee base that may not feel welcome um, to apply to some of these jobs, to legislators, and to the general public to acknowledge that this is a major issue. And how you started off this conversation in your intro, just noting that there's 80 million people who are just as involved. When you say that to people, they don't even realize. Like Like it's such a massive number that they can't even comprehend it. So one of our first core goals of the three that I'll talk about in a minute here is, is to send a market signal and identify this issue and let the general public know that the corporations who are part of the Second Chance Business Coalition are willing to engage in this space, and more importantly, want to create environments where people who are just as involved have a place where they're welcome and that their talents are recognized. The, the second core mission of the coalition is to be a convener. And what I mean by that is, as you kind of wade into this space, and I'm sure you've seen this in your research, there are so many um, community-based organizations spread across the US who are interested in, in re-entry and providing wraparound services for individuals who are returning. What we are attempting to do and what's unique to the size of most of these organizations are is that most companies, the, the 42 companies that are part of the coalition have a presence all over the US. And so what we can do at, through the coalition is to connect the local community-based organizations operating in jurisdictions where a local facility, a local retail store for our members are located. So we want to make sure that we're a convener and bringing people together. The last thing that I think is is critically important is to be transparent amongst our membership uh, when it comes to tools, best practices, and most importantly, lessons learned. As you can imagine, a lot of the companies, what their major concern is in the past has been, how do we talk about this in a safe space? How do we you know, kind of scale this and, and discuss some of the barriers that we're having internally about changing people's minds and perceptions? Where can we do that in a space where we're not going to get judged? And the coalition provides that opportunity for all of its coalition members to have an opportunity to get together, talk about these challenges, and actually create change within their organization.
0: Have you seen any examples of change in maybe a company that Hadn't really given this much thought until you guys brought him into the coalition.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll talk about my own because I I always want to, you know, be respectful of of other companies and and what they're doing. So I'll I'll talk about Eaton and and kind of our our journey and where we are. And let me be clear: we're we're not done. We're just we're in the middle of our our journey and learnings. So we have adopted the the band the box principles years ago. We've been doing that for a long period of time, and just by virtue of us doing that toward the end of 2018 through 2021 to try to do kind of a three-year look back period, 10% of our new hires are justice-involved individuals. And that's just through banning the box and creating a process by which when there is someone who has a criminal history and it shows up on a background check, there is a separate team that's different than the hiring manager who's assessing what's popping up on their criminal history and trying to make an individualized assessment of their criminal history. Since being part of the coalition and doing a deeper dive and a learning on some of these barriers and issues, what we've attempted to do are two things. One, a large number of our population that works in our workforce are contingent workers. And so we have a responsibility to tell the temp agencies that bring us potential employees to give them directions that are consistent with how we think about hiring our own. So making sure to be explicit with them and tell them that we're comfortable with you bringing justice-involved individuals as potential applicants or or temporary workers or part of our workforce. That's a big change that that we've made. The second thing that's that's big is when we put out our requisitions for um, positions that are open in our organization, we've said explicitly right there on the requisition that your justice involvement will not preclude you from getting a fair opportunity um, to apply for this position for us to make an individualized assessment of your skill set. It's not a prima facie barrier to you being considered for a position. And on the back end of that, how we've instructed our background check third-party provider is to narrow the look back period for specific misdemeanors, nonviolent offenses, you know, driving charges that, that clearly would have nothing to do with or no relationship whatsoever to do with your day-to-day responsibilities as a part of our organization.
0: So as we talk about in the business world, as we talk about the fact that there is a shortage of people with skills, broadening the uh, job applicant pool seems to be a bright idea for any company, a good business case. And I also know that studies that show that people who are just as involved, people with criminal records, perform just as well as anyone else. And I think there's another a stigma attached that maybe this person would not be a good employee. What have you seen in the stuff that you've been reading and the research you've done for what you know the role you're playing?
1: Two quick things in response to that. Sherm has done a phenomenal job of, of tracking this and not just, you know, once every blue moon coming out with a report, but consistently updating the data and information. And so to your to your remarks, not only have they noted that managers of people have said that justice-involved individuals perform at or higher at, from a performance perspective, perform at the same level or higher than non-justice-involved individuals, but from a retention perspective, which is just as important as hiring, but from a retention perspective, they stay at the organization longer, which is which is huge. That's, that's a big deal. The other thing that I think is, is critically important and you noted, you know, we look at the unemployment rate today and I think it hovers around three, three and a half percent today. I think the last report from July represent 5.7 million people who are a part of, you know, who are unemployed today. When you think about the height of the pandemic, just for recent memory, in April of 2020, the unemployment rate was somewhere around 14, 15 percent. Right. Here's what I think what blows people's mind is that the normal, the normal unemployment rate for justice involved individuals is 27%. 27%.
0: That's an amazing number. I mean, I and I'm blown away and I look at the numbers all the time.
1: It's 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 staggering. And, and what's even more disheartening, when you get go deeper into that number and start bifurcating out based on race and gender, the story gets even worse. So, Ramona, to your point. It's unfortunate that in America, we have gotten into this culture of sidelining talent in massive numbers. And this is a great time for us in our history to pivot, to pull people off the sidelines and get them back in the game.
0: So you brought up at the beginning, part of the impetus for this coalition, it came after the murder of George Floyd. And there is a push for more equity in bringing underrepresented groups into the workforce. We saw a lot of the fissures. We saw in a workforce, we saw people who were more vulnerable and a lot of the justice involved individuals are black. And so this is also a racial equity issue. It is. I mean, it, 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 it kind of has to
1: be, especially when you look at the statistics we were just talking about and trying to engage that population. You have no choice but to, to kind of consider it as a part of your portfolio of work to make your environments more uh, diverse and inclusive. As a part of that effort, the one thing that always needs to be kept in mind, and it's irrespective of whether the talent is, is just as involved, whether it's based on gender, sexual orientation, gender expression, etc., Our philosophy is talent is talent, period. Talent is talent. And so when we are out in the market trying to find individuals, we're trying to find the most qualified folks. And the reality is they're not concentrated in one place. You've got to be active in all types of spaces. And this space, this particular untapped pool of talent is just a place where we know we can play better. We know we can play bigger and we can establish better better relationships.
0: You know, before we get kind of wrapping up, I want to ask you, for those who don't know Eaton, what kind of work do you guys do? I can Google you. I can look it up, but I don't think it's uh it's one of those names that's out there as uh, commonly as say J P Morgan Chase.
1: Yeah, no, I, I I love that. I love that question. I guess we should have loved that because people are like, what is a? They've probably been googling the whole time. What is it? Eaton? What does it do? Um, so <laughs> Eaton is a, is a global manufacturer. We've been in business for over 100 years. We service customers in 175 countries, have 85,000 employees spread around the world, and we operate in, in two principal uh, sectors. The first sector is our industrial sector, where we're focused on creating component parts for airplanes, consumer vehicles, commercial vehicles. I'm really excited about our e-mobility business as we're focusing on the electrification uh, vehicles themselves participating in that space, but more importantly, the infrastructure that will support electric vehicles. And so one of my favorite um, products that we make are electric vehicle charging stations. and, And that's something that we're really focused on. On the other side of the house is, which is really kind of our bread and butter is our electrical sector where we make everything from, you know, circuit breakers to transformers. If you open up the wall in your house or any commercial building, There's probably an Eaton product somewhere there, making sure that power is safely uh, flowing through your house. The last thing I'll say, and and shame on me, uh, because it's one of our most popular uh, businesses, but people don't realize that it's something that we do because we're so focused on industrial and electrical component parts and services, is golf pride. Uh, So most of the golf grips that are used by professional golfers, and those who think they're professional golfers who are actually terrible, are eaten Golf Grips. And so it's it's a business that I'm really fond of and, and I always like talking about it because most people don't realize that we make all these components,
0: but we also make golf grips. Okay, that was out of, out of nowhere in my yeah. mind. That, I would never expected that to be part of your remit, you know, for your company. So let me wrap up our conversation. I talked to you just a few minutes before we recorded. And, you know, I ask you, did you know anybody who is just as involved? Was this a passion of yours? But it comes out of something different. It comes out of your curiosity, it seems. So what does it mean to you to be able to be a, an advocate for this change in your, your workforce and just our society in general?
1: I'm going to sound like a politician in a minute here, but this is, trust me, that I actually do mean this, and, and this is personal to me. My father was a union electrician. I uh, worked for IBEW Local 38 here in, in Greater Cleveland. And there's a part of our downtown area that sits right on the river. It's got a, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Great Lakes Science Center is right next to it, and then what we call the Factory of Sadness, which is Brown Stadium, sitting right there, all kind of right there on the, on the, um, the uh, Lake Erie there. And my father, he worked on those projects. And I was there with him when I was a kid, kind of on opening day for many of them as they they opened up. I've got the privilege now of serving on the board of trustees for the science center, one of those three buildings. And we were having a meeting a couple of months ago, kind of ironing out our 25th year celebration. And I was sitting in that room and it never had dawned on me before that in one generation, You can have someone who is working to construct a building as an electrician. And then in one generation, their son is an executive at the electrical company that was providing parts for my father to install in that building. And then also has the privilege of helping direct the future of that organization. That is the American dream right there. That's that's it. That's what we're trying to preserve. But it's not preserved on its natural terms. It's preserved because people and organizations step in and say, we have to create opportunities. We have to keep doors open. We got to bust through some windows to make sure that everybody who's a part of our society and culture has that exact same opportunity to advance for themselves and for their families. So, yes, this is a passion project for me just because you get into the data and you can't, you can't help but become passionate, but more than that. As an American, we've got to get better at making sure that we get give everybody a chance.
0: Very well said. I am so glad that I had a chance to talk to you about this. This is a very, very important mission. It's been a pleasure talking with Ramona. Stanball Eaton's Vice President and Chief Litigation Counsel, talking about the Second Chance Business Coalition. I'm Ramona Schindelheim, Editor-in-Chief of Working Nation. Thank you very much for listening.